Who could love a woman like that? Hosea. That's who. Who could love a nation like Israel? Spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness. Who could love her? God can. Who could love a man like me? God can. Hosea chapter 14, if you want to open your Bible. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a six-part series on the book of Daniel. Now that you've found Hosea, if you'll hang a left, the next book is, is Daniel. So we kind of set you up for Daniel with Hosea. We'll kick that off next week. Jonathan and I are putting that together. It's six parts, and it begins next Sunday. What an uncommon love story. We've said this every week. There is no love story like the love story that is Hosea's and Gomer's. She's unfaithful. She's an adulteress. She promises one thing and does another. And through it all, Hosea's love remains steadfast, unconditional. It's ongoing and it never changes. If you know how the story goes, you know that Hosea represents God and Gomer represents Israel. And by default, Israel represents us even today. And don't make the mistake of failing to connect Gomer with Israel and Israel with us. Thereby, Gomer is connected to us. See, I think sometimes when you read this story and when we talk about it in church, Gomer's sin seems so far out of bounds. It is so exceptional that it makes our lives and our mistakes and our failures anything but sin. But they are one and the same. And if you read through the book and you go through this series without ever personalizing this information, you make a huge mistake. Because this uncommon love story that is Hosea's for Gomer and God's for Israel remains true today, 2,800 years later, in God's relationship with us. Now, if you've been reading through the book as we've been working our way through the series, you know that This book and this story is far more about God's relationship with Israel and her unfaithfulness than it is Hosea and Gomer's troubled marriage. In fact, Hosea and Gomer's troubled marriage pretty well plays itself out by chapter 3. And yet there are 11 remaining. And in those 11, it's all about God, it's all about Israel, it's all about God's love, it's all about Israel's unfaithfulness. There are warnings that are then coupled with promises of blessing. And if you've read through the 14 chapters, you know the profound impact of our subject today can have on us and should have had on Israel. We started several weeks ago with God's covenant love for us. God doesn't love you because you're so lovable. He doesn't love me because he feels like it. I don't do anything that stirs up those fuzzies in God. He loves us because he is committed to loving us. It is a covenant, a contract between our Creator and mankind. We also talked about His tough love. Sometimes plans never seem to work out and sometimes we keep running into barriers that have been purposefully set up by God, a loving God, yet a God who can demonstrate His tough love or the toughness of His love because He wants to break us and He wants us to return. Then we talked about His tenderness. God's love can sometimes be tender. Uh, He is perfectly balanced between tough when he needs to be and tender when he needs to be. And then we talked about redeeming love. God's love is so powerful. It is capable of redeeming me even in my sin. Again, remember the analogy. Hosea 
bought a wife. Hosea paid up for an unfaithful adulteress. That's what God did through Jesus Christ for me. Knowing that she would be unfaithful, knowing she had been unfaithful, knowing she was the unfaithful kind, Hosea still paid up for her to redeem her. God's knowing that I've been unfaithful, knowing that I am unfaithful, knowing that I will continue to be unfaithful, paid up for me and for you. And then last time we got together from chapter 6, we talked about our response. What is an acceptable response to this kind of love? Well, from chapter 6, it's all about returning and pursuing. You see, God's not going to settle for anything less than your total devotion. God will continue to pursue you until you are totally, solely, and wholeheartedly devoted to Him. God doesn't want to exist in your world in some clever little love triangle that you've created. We have affection for God. We kind of flirt with God. But we also have affection for other things. The Old Testament would call those other things idols. You see, God wants us to respond. He wants us to respond today in 2016, just like He wanted the nation of Israel to respond in Hosea's day. But what if we don't respond? What if we refuse to respond? What if this love keeps coming at us? What happens to it? Does it change? Does he turn it off? I know I would. You probably might. I mean, if I keep reaching out and you keep reaching out, if, if I keep demonstrating love, if, if I keep sacrificing for another and that love is never returned or there is no response whatsoever, I guarantee you I'm very likely to simply turn it off. But God's love isn't like that. God's love is what we might call unrelenting. In fact, that's the big idea in the service today. I want to make sure you get this. God's love, in addition to all the other things it is, it is unrelenting. Now that means it is not yielding in strength. It is not yielding in severity. It is not yielding in intensity. It is not yielding in determination. Do you understand that? God's love for you is so unrelenting that it refuses to yield even an inch. It refuses to back down even a bit. It refuses to give up. It refuses to take a break. He simply won't quit. It's one of the mega themes of your Old Testament. If you know the story of the Old Testament, one of the overarching grand themes that comes through loud and clear is Israel's up and down relationship with God. They're in fellowship with God and He's blessing them and He's taking care of them. He's restoring the nation. He's building the people. And then they chase after someone else or something else, an idol of sorts. And they're down. They repent. They break. They come back to God up and down throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It's one of the mega themes of the Old Testament. And through all of that, God's love remains the same. It never changes. That's because it's unrelenting. Now, when I think of that word unrelenting, I think about boxing. I think specifically about a boxer. Okay? This week in my study, I googled some pictures of Rocky Balboa in Rocky 1. Remember that movie? I mean, Apollo Creed beat him senseless. But when I looked at all those pictures, I said, that's made up. That's make-believe. That's Hollywood. That's makeup and effects. These are actors. This guy is not an actor. This guy's name is Robert Guerrero. And when I saw that picture, and there were a couple of others, he was even more bloody in those. I thought I'd kind of tone it down a little bit for the service on church on Sunday. 
But look at the look in his eyes. I mean, one of them is beginning to swell. They're dealing with blood in his corner in between rounds. He's been pummeled by a bigger, stronger, faster boxer. But look at his uh, demeanor. I think if I had taken the beating this man had taken, I certainly wouldn't be standing there in an aggressive posture. I think it'd be something more like this. Right? This guy has taken a beating, but he's unrelenting. He's unrelenting. He will not give in. He is weakened, but he stands in strength. He is on the defensive, but he remains aggressive. It's powerful. The headline of the uh, article read, Robert Guerrero may have lost in the ring to Keith Thurman, but he won a ton of respects outside of the ring for his gutsy performance. Boxing is an amazing sport. Have you ever laced on the gloves in boxing? When I was in the ninth grade, this is so long ago, some of you younger moms and dads, you're going to be shocked by this. My high school P.E., did a whole unit on boxing, which meant that we put on the gloves and we wore the headgear and we boxed three-minute rounds three times. We had a little tournament. Uh, now, I don't even know if you'd get away with that today. I mean, our children are so soft and fragile, you know. We have to be so careful with them. Uh, now, I was a ninth grader and I was the quarterback on the varsity football team. I was the only starting freshman on our varsity football team. The majority of the team were juniors and, and seniors. As a ninth grader, I had to earn the respect of these upperclassmen. Well, in PE, in the ninth grade, I was about 175, 180 pounds, six foot four. And so naturally, he didn't put me with some of the other ninth graders. He put me with juniors and seniors. One of them was named Randy Tyler. Now, Randy Tyler and Scott Holdren were both also on the football team, and they had no respect for their underclassman quarterback. Randy was not as big as me. His arms weren't as long as mine. He was not as tall as I was. He didn't weigh as much as I did. But let me tell you something. I was a pretty good little Sunday school boy. This kid was mean. Randy Tyler was mean as a snake. And he saw his match with me as an opportunity to teach me a lesson. And I'm going to be honest with you. He beat me, like my father-in-law would say, like a borrowed mule. I mean, he beat me bloody. Three rounds. Look, three minutes boxing, I can tell you. Those 16-ounce gloves that they give you when you're kids, you know, the kind of the big puffy ones, they feel like they weigh 15 pounds. Your heart is racing. Your lungs are screaming for oxygen. It was one of the worst beatings, officially sanctioned beatings, I've ever taken in my life. Okay? But at the end of those nine minutes, three three-minute rounds, I still, was, I still stood. I lost the, the, the match, but I still stood. Okay? We had this drill we would do in... Uh, Football practice called Bull in the Ring. You probably do something like this if you've played football or you're a coach. Uh, they put a person in the middle. They give him the ball. All the other football players are in a circle. And you're the bull. And when the coach blows the whistle, you've got to break free of the ring. You've got to break through the ring. Now, I'll be honest with you. Most guys, they pick like the third string flanker, the little guy that never got in the game, but he dressed out on Fridays. And that's who they went at. But I didn't do that. I went after two guys. Daniel Blackburn and Mike Hamilton. One was the nose guard and one was the middle linebacker. The biggest, meanest, nastiest guys on our team. And when the whistle blew, I went after one of them or the other one or both of them every time. I went after, and you had to go until you got out of the ring. Let me tell you something. Those were long practices. 
I went home one afternoon because I'd hit Mike Hamilton so low and so hard and so many times that his face mask would fall and dig into my back. And when I pulled my shirt up, my whole back was black and blue. My mother called the coach that night. The reason being, I didn't want to be beaten. You're in a situation where you don't want to get beaten. You want to prove something to someone that you feel like you must. Let me draw the parallel. For my lifetime, I have been beating my Heavenly Father. I have been beating Him. I have been beating Him. He says, do it this way. And I say, no, I'll do it that way. He says, look, give in to me. And I say, absolutely not. I've got a better plan. And I have pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And maybe you have too. And yet His love continually comes back for more. It's amazing when you think about it. God's love can take a beating. And yet it'll never waver. Not one iota. It's unrelenting. Over your lifetime. Believe it or not. Even though your sin may not be as dark and blackened as Gomer's. God's love will take a beating for you. And if you were the only person on the planet. He would still take that same beating. One of the great images of the cross to me. Is sacrifice through suffering. I'm typically not willing to do that for you. You're probably not willing to do that for me. Jesus said there's no greater love than someone who's willing to lay down their life in sacrifice for someone else. I mean, if you love your wife or you love your children, you'll take a beating for them. That's for sure. You might even lay down your life for them, but not for a perfect stranger. Hmm. Well, if you know the story of Hosea, it doesn't end well. It's not the happy ending we've grown accustomed to with our love stories. You know that Israel never responds. Israel never turns. She never repents. She never comes back. In fact, through this prophetic work of the Old Testament, as well as others like it, we understand that Israel will never respond until the days of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. So the book, Hosea, continues with chapter after chapter, more and more warnings against Israel, the coming judgment. But in the final chapter, the final nine verses, there's a little upturn. It kind of ends on a high note. Though it's not the hallmark magical ending we've grown accustomed to, it is, however, a beautiful picture of God's unrelenting love. Read with me the first three verses of chapter 14. The Bible says, Return Israel to the Lord your God. Return Israel. To the Lord your God, for your sins have been your downfall. Guess what? That 2,800-year-old message is as every bit as relevant today as it was back in those days. Do you realize that every problem in your life, every conflict in your life, every difficulty in your life is connected to sin? It's either your sin, someone else's sin, their sin, or universal sin. You understand that? In the United States of America... Our sins will be our downfall. At Grace Community Church, our sins will be our downfall. In my love relationship with my wife, our sin could be our downfall. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look at verse 2. Take words with you when you return to the Lord. Now that's interesting to me. Take words. Not offerings. Hey, make sure you bring a big offering to the temple God says, and we'll make this right. Nope. Not sacrifice. Make sure you have an emotional service where sacrifice is offered. That's not the plan. 
He says, take words with you. You know what I picture? I picture being a 10-year-old kid forced by my parents to stand in front of my 7-year-old sister and say those two difficult words, I'm so sorry. That's what I picture. Bring words. What does the parent say? Michael, what do you say? Bring your words. I'm sorry. David said in Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. He's entered into gruesome and terrible sin with Bathsheba, ultimately murders her husband Uriah, and then he repents, and he pins the words to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says, you're not asking me for offering. You're not asking me for sacrifice, else I would bring it. But he says this, a broken and a contrite heart is what you desire. God wants us to say we're sorry. That's all he wants. One of the most difficult things for a husband to say to a wife, a parent to say to a child, a friend to a friend, an employee to an employer, I'm sorry. Bring your words with you and return. Say to God, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. And according to the New Testament, he does every time, every time that we may offer the fruit of our lips. That's praise. Verse 3. For Assyria cannot save us. We talked about this earlier from chapter 4. A political ally is not the strength of Israel. Some contract or treaty that we've signed, that's not going to get us through. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. There are two reoccurring themes throughout this book and throughout this story. And they are return and repent. Return and repent. How many times have we read not only the words, but certainly the ideas. Hosea says to Gomer, return to me. I'm your rightful husband. You're my rightful wife. We can make this work. But you've got to repent of your sin. And God says to Israel, return to me, Israel. Come back. Stop chasing after idols, broken treaties with Assyria. Return to me and repent. And God says the same to us. Return and repent. These two things remain key components to any strong faith walk. You see? And again, I warned you at the beginning. Don't sit here and compare your sin to Gomer's. Okay? Because returning and repenting is an ongoing process to spiritual strength. You get that, right? Returning and repenting is an ongoing com- are ongoing components to a strong faith walk. I return and I compent, uh, repent over little things. I return and I repent today. I will likely return and repent tomorrow. I will likely return and repent the following day because I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Returning and repentance keep me strong. They keep me close to my Heavenly Father. Someone taught me a long time ago, don't lay down at night and, quote, say your prayers. Instead, remain in prayer all day long. Keep short accounts. That's the key word. Short accounts with your Heavenly Father. When we return, when we repent, two fundamentally, profoundly impactful things occur. Here. When we return, that brings focus by removing the idol. You see, when you return to God, when you make up your mind to go back, to return. Remember what we said last time. You cannot go to God without leaving where you are. See? So when you make up your mind to go back, 
your focus shifts from what was pleasing you or you thought would please you to now what it is that pleases God. That removes the idol. When I decide to return, when you decide to return, and think about this, I'm modern day 2016, not familiar with the term idol. I don't think any of us go home and bow down to some little homemade statue that we've created in our shop. <laughs> but we still all wrestle with idols. Let me, let me describe what an idol is. An idol is someone or something that you will sacrifice for before you would ever think of sacrificing for God or others. And that could be anything. That could be a man's pursuit for success. Could be an idol. Could be someone's pursuit for money and monetary gain or materialism. Could be substance abuse. We will sacrifice for this before we would ever think of sacrificing for God or for others. That's an idol. And when we return to God, the focus shifts from that, the idol, to what pleases God. See, that enables us to remove it. We sacrifice for these things when we won't sacrifice for God and others. It's an old word. We don't use it today, but the Bible would call that an idol. So by returning, we're shifting our focus. And then number two, our repentance brings the forgiveness and the restoration. See, to repent literally means to turn around. Let me give you a good example. When I get frustrated with my wife and I say something in a dishonoring way, Oh, I don't have to use swear words. I don't have to call her names or try and demean her. But let's say I just raise my voice and I say something in a way that dishonors her. To repent, to repent is to turn from that, take the focus off of what was pleasing me, making sure she heard my point, and open up so that I can hear and receive hers. When I repent, that's what brings about the reunion. That's what brings about the restoration in the marriage. That's what God says throughout the book of Hosea. To repent is to turn around. What we once were focused on is now behind us. Now it's no longer important that I make sure she hear me. Now what becomes most important is that I hear her. And man, what a beautiful cycle you can have in your home if both come at the disagreement from that same vantage point. See, over and over in the book of Hosea, God is warning, hey, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. I cannot allow you to try and pin me up in this self-created little love triangle of yours. I won't tolerate it. God demands your love wholeheartedly. Judgment's coming. But then he also promises ongoing blessing if they'll just repent. And 2,800 years later, the same is true for you and me. Two words, return, repent. There's a talented musician in our church. His name is Stephen Jones. You'll recognize him in a moment. He stands on the stage and picks a guitar. Check this out. I am Gomer with my little brood. God scatters no mercy, not my people. And the broken legacy they imply. My babies are gorgeous. And so are their names. And not knowing Hebrew, you'd never even know their terrible meanings. Are they Hosea's? The firstborn is, I hope so, but perhaps only by marriage. Yes, I've played the harlot. I've got my reasons, 
But like all who wander, I'm void of excuses. Some run for pleasure, some run from pain, then some to feign higher purposes. But a temple prostitute is not one eyelash better than a painted crone who walks the lower streets. My hope bled out slowly as I accepted who I had become. No way back, it seemed, to the faithful wife and motherhood that stood beautiful, modest, yet proud. Hosea and God himself would be right to divorce me and never look back. To my dismay, the prophet, for no husband could, remained by my side in patient, loving forbearance. In his eyes lived pain like an ocean without one drop of contempt for me, the betrayer who wore fine-colored apparel, pretending precious life was a dream. And then, life was. Something deep inside me had changed because of him. I was ashamed, really, for the first time, though I'd known shame. I wanted for the first time, though I had idly pined, I feared failure, though I'd been afraid, always of success, as defined by heaven. A revolution was happening, worthy of a wayward woman, man, child, or nation. I am Gomer, with my little flock. God sows. You have received mercy. You are my people. I am my husband's now. And my husband is mine. And I and my children are, for this adulterous generation, God's pursuing perennial sign. What a powerful love story is Hosea's love for Gomer. And when you think about it, if you take their relationship and their problematic marriage out of the story, then to the skeptic, to the critic, It's just another book pronouncing judgment on those who fail to measure up. But I love that God included a real man and a real woman in this analogy of his great love for us. God's love is so unrelenting that it will pursue you until you respond. The very last verse of the chapter, verse 9, reads, Who is wise? Who gets this? Who is discerning? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Who is understanding? Let them understand. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the rebellious will stumble all over them. There's a threefold takeaway. I want to make sure you get it. It's obvious to Hosea, and it's obvious from reading the story. God's ways are right. And deep down, you know that to be the case, don't you? God's ways are always right. Deep down right now, you know that God's way for your family, God's way for your marriage, God's way for your money, your finances, God's way for your time and your priority, God's way for your relationships. It's right. It's right. That's what keeps you coming back for more. His ways are right. One of the hardest things for me to do is admit it, even when I know it. Then he says, the righteous will walk in them. The single most defining outward action on your behalf. 
that demonstrates the authenticity of your faith in Jesus Christ is that desire to simply honor God with that one precious life that he's given you. If you are here and there's just no real desire to honor God, to walk in his ways, then you very likely remain lost in your sin. You need to turn that around. Then the last one is perhaps the most telling. The rebellious stumble over them. God's ways are right. The righteous try and walk in them, but the rebellious stumble, stumble over them. It is very ironic to me that forgiveness is the only solution to my sin problem. You ever think about that? Forgiveness. One of the hardest things for me to grant you, one of the hardest things for me to accept from you, God says forgiveness is the only solution to my sin problem. Forgiveness. The book reminds me that when God sent His Son Jesus, He didn't send us a great teacher because we don't need a great teacher. He didn't, he didn't send us a series of do-overs because if He gave me a thousand opportunities to correct my wrong, my unrighteousness before God, I'd be just as lost after number 1,000 as I won, was when I very first started the process. Instead, He grants His forgiveness. Did you notice the tattoo had changed on her wrist in the video? Now it read... Grace. Because that's the only thing that can solve our sin problem. And so we end our series and we end the story of Hosea with two words, return and repent. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond today and I pray you'll do it. Again, don't make the mistake of assuming because your sin is not as grand, is not as spectacular, is not as darkened as Gomer's that you have no business to do with God. We all have business to do with God, and I pray you'll take this time to do it. Would you stand, please? We're going to play a song. Jonathan's going to be down front. I'm going to be down front. If you want us to pray with you, we would love to. Okay? If not, you're welcome to come by yourself and pray. Kneel. This is your opportunity to return and repent. Father, bless this time. We give it to you. It is really more yours than ours. I pray that you will use it in our hearts to give us clarity of mind and thought whereby we might recognize the next important step in our spiritual journey. I pray it because of Christ. While the music plays, you feel free to join us if you'd like. God bless you. Father in God, when I think about how quickly I will sacrifice for my wife, for my money and my stuff, how quickly I will sacrifice for my work and success, I'm ashamed. Father, it is in my DNA, it is in my nature to sacrifice for all these people and things before it is to sacrifice for you. So teach me the value of ongoing return and ongoing repentance in my personal life. And I pray these things with much respect and thanksgiving to your son, Jesus, who makes it all possible. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time. Membership class will begin in about 10 minutes in the community room, all right? Membership class.